If you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, or the same text is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Um, We skipped a week last week, but we're back in our series on Jonah, which is uh, Jonah's own come-to-Jesus meeting about his self-righteousness. The whole book is. The most encouraging thing about the book is that uh, the account seems to be firsthand. He told us. Uh, about himself. He told us everything embarrassing about himself, about how slow a study he was, uh, how slow he was to let these things sink through his head. But uh, the lesson for Jonah about his self-righteousness was uh, a lesson for him as he was going to be involved in God's mission in the world. That if he's going to be involved in that mission, um, his first need is to learn his own need of compassion from God. Uh, Not to be inspired to give of his uh, magnificent gifts and insight and intelligence to other people, but to be convinced of his own need, his own uh, need of God's compassion, and therefore his own identification with the people to whom he would speak. Uh, It's a hard lesson. Uh, His is an especially dramatic version of that lesson, but for any of us that want to be a part of what God's doing in the world, to be a part of Jesus' mission, learning our own need of compassion is the very beginning place. And apart from that, we're never going to be of much use at all to him. So we'll get to use Jonah's story um, and his mistakes to learn from. But I want us to pray as we begin and ask that God would open our hearts to him as well. Father, please come and help us. We are here because we want to know you. Uh, We look to your word because you speak to us truly in it. But uh, you know these things can just rattle his ideas in our heads if you don't cause them to penetrate deeper. And we ask that you would open our hearts to you as well as our minds and change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Read with me the last verse of Jonah 1 through uh, the second chapter. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Uh, So... I don't know if many of you read Flannery O'Connor. I hope most of you will at some point. Uh, under my uh, profound tutelage, come to love St. Flannery as I do. Um, but in the meantime, you're going to get stories from Flannery O'Connor regularly, I think. Uh, 
little children in Georgia are made to read in the Norton Anthology, uh, one of her short stories always, it's A Good Man is Hard to Find. And so it tends to be the most familiar story. It's about a family that's going on vacation. They're driving uh, mid-last century from Georgia down to Florida. It's a husband, Bailey, and his wife, and they have two children who are pretty smart-mouthed children and pretty funny. And then the grandmother, who is the protagonist in the story. She's never named, besides being the grandmother. But she's uh, a mannerly southern woman uh, of the type very familiar to me and probably to some of you, too. Um, She dressed especially nicely for the trip with this thinking, that if there's a wreck on the way and I die and they find me on the side of the road, they'll see how I was dressed and at least they'll know that I was a lady. So, you know, she cares about certain things a lot, but she's also mean. She's self-righteous and condescending and racist and proud. And um, she doesn't know that or wouldn't say that, but um, it's shown to her in the story. She's worried as they go about an escaped criminal called the misfit that is on the loose somewhere in South Georgia and makes the trip seem treacherous to her. And, of course, one way or the other, they wind up running into the misfit on their trip. And so they have this encounter with the misfit who, uh, since she is able to identify him, can't leave them alive as witnesses. And so, one by one, he and his uh, partners in crime take the family away into the woods. And you hear gunshots, which you assume uh, are the killing of the family. And then she's just left there with him, the grandmother and the misfit. And uh, she's trying to persuade him to be good. She says, I know, you're, I know you're a good man. And he says, no, ma'am, I ain't. And uh, she says, but I know, I know you don't have any common blood in you. You're a good man. I know, I know you wouldn't shoot a lady. And, uh, of course, he would. But uh, as she talks to him and as she's in her frenzy of worry about her life at this point, he draws kind of close up to her face and she looks at him and she has this epiphany moment. And she says, why, you're one of my babies. You're, you're one of my own children. Uh, and that is that she suddenly recognized in the misfit you know, herself and her family and her kind. That he wasn't in some sort of a repugnant other category. But this was her epiphany. I'm like you, and you're like me. And when she has this moment of uh, identification with him, her instinct is to reach out to touch his cheek, and as she does, it says he draws back like a snake bit him, and he shoots her three times in the chest and kills her, which is the kind of way Flannery O'Connor tends to end stories, things. But um, the misfit comments after she dies, and he's kind of the prophetic character in the story, and he says she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to kill her every minute of her life. In other words, at the moment of her death, she was able to see herself truly uh, and would have been a good woman if she could have seen herself that way uh, every minute of her life, but it was only at that moment that she was able to see it. She'd have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Well, Jonah would have been a good prophet if it had been a fish there to swallow him every minute of his life, right? Because this is his epiphany moment. Um, when he's swallowed by the fish, he's able finally to begin to get clarity about who he really is. Once he's in the belly, once he's under the waves, then the idea that he needs compassion as much as the people in Nineveh that he was sent to speak to needed compassion. 
His own need of compassion, though, was the thing that held him back. He didn't have that sense that enabled him to identify with other people who had the same need he had until he was in the belly of the whale. And once he did begin to realize it, even just begin to realize it, it turned him into a missionary. So um, that's what I want us to look at today through his story, that for us, mission doesn't begin with us going to share our moral and spiritual insight and largesse with the less worthy. Mission for us begins with understanding our own need of compassion that causes us to identify with the people around us. So, you know, it's easy to see in Jonah's life that he was, you know, he's running away from God. He doesn't want to go to the Ninevites. He thinks they're awful. And we recognize self-righteousness in him. But it's hard for him because it's, it's humiliating news to get, right? He's being told that his repugnant others, right, the people that he despises most are just like he is that they have the same need that he has before God. And that's, that breaks down your whole sense of yourself. You know, the idea that I'm like them and they're like me is hard to take. Uh, there are two things he kind of had to know from that that I want us to think about. Uh, the first one is that he and the Ninevites are the same sort of people. And that's the really bad news of this for him, that I'm like they are. And... Um, it just doesn't make sense. He never imagined in any of his moments of deepest piety and, and greatest ecstasy as a worshiper of God. You know, he's a religious man. He's a prophet all his life. But he's never had the thought before that I am just like, on a moral equivalence level, the people in Nineveh who are just the worst. It's never occurred to him to think that way. As a matter of fact, he's, the reason he's so torqued up is because he's mad at God because he thinks he's more moral than God is. He's thinking, I would never have compassion on people like them. They don't deserve it. And I'm scandalized that God would want to have compassion on them. He shouldn't want to do that. I'm more moral because I care more about justice than God does. And he's got that fire of self-justifying anger going on in his mind. At the same time, he knows he's dead guilty because... God spoke to him and he did the opposite of what God told him to do. So I'm guilty and I'm self-righteously mad at the same time. And that's where he is when he hits the water. Right? Because he's... Now he's just being judged by God. Like he says in verse 3 and 4, you know, when he susses it out, he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me, your waves, your billows passed over me. And I said, I'm driven away from your sight. And that's what he's got to think. He's being killed. And he's mad about it, and he feels guilty about it. And God's killing me, but God shouldn't be killing me because God isn't doing what's right. Because God doesn't look at those people the way I look at those people, and I know I'm right. They're disgusting. They don't deserve compassion. I don't know who your repugnant others are. Todd Snyder is a singer I like to listen to sometimes. And he has a song that lays it out pretty well. It goes like this. I'll try not to sing it, but it says, Conservative Christian, right-wing Republican, straight white American males. Gay bashing, black-fearing, poor-fighting, tree-killing, regional leaders of sale. Frat-housing, keg-tapping, shirt-tucking, back-slapping, haters of hippies like me. Tree-hugging, peace-loving, pot-smoking, barefooting, folk-singing hippies like me. Tree-hugging, love-making, pro-choice and gay-wedding, widespread-digging hippies like me. Skin-color-blinded, conspiracy-minded, protesters of corporate greed. We who have nothing and most likely will have till we all get locked up in jails. 
by conservative Christian right-wing Republican straight white American males. Um, That's funnier than you're acting like. uh, But he does a great job shining the light on the repugnant other, right? I'm not like them at all. They're not like me at all. They're happy about that, and so am I. I'm not like them. And the message that we're getting, that Jonah's getting fairly slowly is, yeah, you are like them. You're like them, whoever they are. And uh, when Jonah has time and uh, the right circumstances under the waves in the belly of a fish, whatever kind of miracle created that, uh, he's got time and a place to think. And he finally, finally prays when he refused to pray in the first chapter. Finally prays and the light finally begins to dawn on him that um, at least a little bit better that he's got problems of his own that the Ninevites aren't the bad people that need compassion any more than he's a bad person who needs compassion. And that light starts to dawn on him. He doesn't exactly cry out for mercy in the passage and say, oh, I'm so self-righteous, I see it now, please forgive me. But he's getting there, right? He's moving there a little bit. And as he does so, he begins to see the second thing he needs to know, which is that all this stuff that's happening in his life is actually God pursuing him in compassion. That God's coming after him in love, not to crush him, not to shame him, uh, but to fix him. He's coming in compassion. The fish is a mercy, not a judgment. I mean, I don't know how long you have to be in a fish before you figure that out. At first you're thinking, wow, I, I was trying to do the honorable thing and kill myself Uh, to save those sailors, and now this fish has come, so God not only is killing me, but he's rubbing it in. He's giving me a slow death, right? Great. Um, That's just what I would expect. And I don't know how long it takes before you start to recover, but sometime within the three days, uh, his reflections went more towards what he wrote down later um, in his uh, poem that he wrote about his prayer in the belly, and um, he's come to see that the fish is God's fish. He says in In uh, verse 17, when he tells the story, he says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It was the Lord's fish. And uh, the the storm that came was God's storm. In verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The flood surrounded me. It was your waves, your billows that passed over me. Not because you're crushing me, but because you're coming after me to my rescue. He's coming after Jonah in mercy. The whole thing. He says in verse 6, I went down... To the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Uh, The whole thing's a rescue mission. God is rescuing Jonah. And when you read the story, especially if you're less familiar with the Bible, you start to wonder, why is God rescuing this guy? This guy's a self-righteous jerk. This is the kind of guy that causes people to dislike Christianity because uh, they're smug and condescending. And... Why don't you let this guy die? That might be the best thing for the mission. And so why is God being compassionate to this self-righteous, hard-hearted guy? And the answer is is because that's how God is. God is compassionate. He's compassionate towards people who don't deserve it. That is His nature. That is what He does when He acts in the world. That He loves all of us despite our rebellion against Him. And... 
despite everything he could rightly hold against us and more that we don't even realize, he's decided to move out towards us in compassion rather than in judgment. And takes the initiative to do that with us, even if we don't notice it. You know, I don't know if you had time to read the quotes at the beginning of the uh, bulletin, but like C.S. Lewis said, you know, uh, you wouldn't be wanting him unless he already wanted you. You wouldn't be wanting him unless he already wanted you. And um, that's a very hard truth to read out of your circumstances in life. You say, oh, I look at, see what's happening in my life, so now I realize God must really be after me in compassion and really wants me, wants a relationship with me. Um, we know this because of what God's revealed to us in the Scripture. What He's told us is true, not what we read in our circumstances. And we know it especially through the one who really came to rescue us with compassion, the good missionary, Jesus, who was not reluctant like Jonah, but who came of His own volition for us and came after us in mercy who uh, didn't, as a last resort, throw himself under the judgment of God under the waves, but who willingly submerged himself under the judgment of God in our place uh, because he wants us, because he wants to show compassion to us. Knowing you as well as he knows you, knowing everything that your conscience can throw up as reasons he shouldn't want you, nonetheless he wants you. Nonetheless he's willing to be merciful to you. And... I don't know, this may be a hard thing to believe from your interactions with the church because so often, so many of us are condescending and self-righteous and run to avoid you as if you're going to make us dirty or something like that. And I just want you to know, if that's you, that that's not how Jesus is. That Jesus comes after you in compassion. He loves you. He wants you. And so don't be, don't be misled by jerks like me who act condescending and foolish like Jonah did. But you, you see Jonah's story, and you see probably in your own experience too, that if you're condescending and self-righteous, you're probably pretty useless in Jesus' mission in the world. Pretty useless because you know, Jesus' mission in the world is to take people, to give them mercy and send them out to communicate His mercy to other people. And if you don't feel your need for mercy, how good are you going to be at that? How believable are you going to be? Not very. All right, so Jonah starts getting this idea, and he starts doing what uh, Tim Keller says. He says he starts uh, talking to himself instead of listening to himself, if you know the difference there. Right? Instead of just being alone with your thoughts and letting your mind run, he starts saying, I know, actually, I know this to be true. And a lot of what he says in his poem pushes him back to things that he knows are true, that he's always known are true. Uh, that orient him better to what's the reality of life. He says in verse 7, you know, I, when, I remember, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. And he's thinking about the temple, right? He's got time to think about this. He doesn't have to just hurry his prayer. And what's he think of the temple? The temple is, in one way, it's the nationalistic, just us chickens uh, place for God's people, right? This is where we gather together and nobody else can come in. But the more you think about the temple, you realize, well, actually, you know, believers come there, but none of us can come in. Like there's a court of the Gentiles and a court of the women and a court of the men. But then there's the huge curtain and we're kept out. The big picture is exclusion. But what we're told in the temple is that right in the middle at the heart of the thing is not um, some sort of a nationalistic symbol for those who are faithful and loyal. But in the center of the temple is the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat, because God has His people gathered to Him in His mercy. 
And the temple is supposed to be uh, not only a magnetic place for the nations of the world to come to worship the true God, but it's also to be a centrifugal place that sends God's people out into the world with the hope of mercy to the nations. And so Jonah has time to think about these things. And in verse 8, he remembered, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And he's realized that not only are the Ninevites uh, idolaters who worship false gods and do so in vile ways, but he realizes I'm an idolater and I worship false gods in vile ways too. And my religious idols that are uh, full of pride and self-salvation are no better than the uh, idols of the Ninevites. Actually, mine are worse because I know better. He starts to see that. He starts to see he's the object of compassion, not just the messenger of it. And it changes him. And he, even, even as little as he's understanding about this at this point, uh, it's enough to propel him out. And then God propels him out uh, back onto his mission to go speak to the Ninevites. Now he can speak to them. And uh, says it in that lovely phrase, he vomited him out on dry land. Right? And, uh, you know, we've been vomited out on some dry land ourselves, right? I did see it rain a couple of times since we moved here, but... It's pretty dry. Why do you get involved in a mission church? Try a church plant. You start usually a couple of reasons. One, you're a seeker, right? You're curious about the Christian faith. You want to know is this real? Sometimes it's an easier place to ask your questions and to make friends. Uh, for Christians, the reason to be involved in a church startup is that you want to be a part of God's mission, going to the city, right? You want to see Him at work. You want to go to church not just to get for yourself. Uh, to get fed and nurtured and cared for, but you want to be a part of the, the mission extending. You want to see God's compassion going out. If you don't like that, uh, there's not much charm in a mission church for you. Right? That seems to be the main motivation. And so here we are in Midtown, hoping to be useful, hoping to see God at work, giving His compassion to people that we never would have expected Him to. And the key, if, there's, if you can speak in these terms, the key to our effectiveness is not going to be in our strategy or having a great pitch to give to people who aren't Christians. The key to our fruitfulness in the city is going to be our own sense of our need of compassion. That we are like the people who live in Midtown who don't know Jesus Christ. We are like them. And we go to them as people who need compassion, not as those who are sharing our spiritual largesse with the less worthy. Now, you probably know that, um, but what this means is that you, you lead a lot in Jesus' mission with your weakness, with identifying with people and their brokenness rather than um, just sympathizing with them. You can empathize with people and their brokenness. And that you share your life with people in a way that causes them not to just know your successes, but to know your failures. Uh, enough uh, to know why you think you need Jesus too. Right? And I don't think that's usually what people smell on us. That's not usually the attitude they hear from us. Um, we generally tend to avoid people who we think aren't like us. And um, Jesus didn't do this, you know. He was... He was friends with sinners, but people like us criticized him for that. You know, they said, what are you doing eating with those people? Don't you know who they are? And Jesus' answer to that was almost always in some storied form, don't you know who you are? <laughs> if you knew who you were, it would change who's at your dinner table. So 
But we say things like this, well, I don't, I just don't have anything in common with people that aren't Christians. And Jesus, you know, does spit takes when you say things like that. Like, oh, you don't, really, that's, I differ. (laughs) You do have a lot in common. You have everything in common with your friends who aren't Christians. You have a hope that they don't have. That's the end of the differences, right? That's the end of the differences. We have everything in common. Your whole humanity is in common with people who aren't Christians. We say things like, well, I, I, I fear that I will be contaminated uh, by people who aren't Christians if I hang around them. Or we really say this, I fear that my children will be contaminated if I let them have friends who aren't inside the faith. And um, there's, there's need for discretion in parenting with anybody. You know that. But what's the biggest threat your children face, really? Uh, if you're an earnest Christian, uh, raising your children very intentionally as Christians, you know, the biggest danger they face uh, is you. Right? It's that they're going to they're gonna catch your smugness and condescension and self-righteousness, and they're going to double down on it, and they're going to be even more impossible to be around than you are. Sorry, that seems a little <laughs> mean to say. But really, what, do you, what happens to our church kids? They grow up and they become Pharisees. Right? It's, it's not they grow up and become hellions. They might. But often the ones that grow up and become hellions are rebelling against the smugness and condescension of their parents. So the idea that we'll be contaminated, uh, it, didn't seem, it didn't seem to worry Jesus. Right? And not just himself, but he took his young disciples who didn't know much at all uh, to parties like Matthew's party things like that. He, he uh, did not um, absent himself from people who didn't believe in him. And we're not meant to do that either. So, you know, Jonah, Jonah's not fixed. He's just getting his start on this. But uh, we need a start on it too, hopefully less violent than a fish eating us. But I've heard you guys describing uh, making uh, progress down this path a little bit. You know, T-ball families that come to join you at your games, uh, people coming to your dinner table, coworkers that want to uh, go have a drink with you before they go home, even though they know you're a Christian, praying for people that you're not used to praying for. You know, that's how you start to learn. One of the things that's helped me the most um, is being around non-Christians who are smarter than I am. Um, it's very helpful when your idol is that you think you're smarter than everyone else <laughs> to be around people who disagree with you who are much smarter than you are or who are more kind than you are or who are better parents than you are. That's especially humbling. When we lived in Oregon, people, um, people used to say, hey, you want, your kids want to come over and play? Uh, you know, we don't, we don't have any video games or drugs or guns in the house. And uh, we'd say, yeah, that'll be great. And when your kids come over, they, they'll be safe too because we don't have any drugs in the house. uh, huh these people are bearing down harder than we are and uh, we're the missionaries here it's good for me it's really good for me it's good for it's one of the ways that God works with you if you expose yourself if you just show up and make friends with people who aren't Christians and then you start praying for them um, not just about them but for them and with real love and start to listen to their questions and objections and you find you don't need a good pitch to be a good evangelist. You need to, to give two cents about somebody else and be involved in their lives. To learn to 
What does the world feel like for them when they're living it without a relationship with Jesus? What does that feel like for them? And if you know that, it's bound to provoke compassion, isn't it? A good example of this I like is from uh, Clint Eastwood in the movie he did, Gran Torino. I don't know if you've seen Gran Torino, but you should have. And uh, he's a curmudgeonly old guy. I love the movie because in the movie, Eastwood has a generosity and a hope of redemption for people like my dad. Um, uh, because the main character is a curmudgeonly old veteran who was living in a neighborhood in Detroit that had changed. It had become populated almost completely along his street by Hmong people, or Hmong, as he said when they started it, and uh, Hmong people. And he did not like them because he had fought in Asia in the Korean War, and he lumped all uh, Asians together, and so he had no use for these people. And he had an amazing vocabulary of slurs for these people. Like, I thought my dad was good at slurs, but... In this movie, Eastwood's character was great at slurs and things I had never heard before, but um, he hated these people. But because he was there with them and rubbing shoulders with them, um, he got to know some of them. And it started to erode his uh, self-righteous, judgmental attitude toward them um, because the one thing he knew in his life is he was not like those people. Um, Gooks was his favorite term, right? I'm not like them. They've invaded my neighborhood. I don't know what they're doing here, these gooks. But eventually, he got to know the family next door. And um, as he got drawn into their lives and as they were drawn into his life, uh, he had his epiphany moment when he was at, went to the restroom in their house, and he's looked at himself in the mirror, and he said, I got more in common with these gooks than I have with my own family got more in common with them than I have with my own family. And it's that that propelled him then to be able to lay down his life for them. Um, As a Christian, (laughs) openly as a Christian in the movie, um, that his identification with them, that I am like them, enabled him to have the compassion to serve them and to go on mission for them and to lay down his life for their sakes. He was able to identify with his repugnant other and it's a beautiful picture, as beautiful a picture as I've seen in a movie about the sacrificial love of Jesus for us. So here you are, vomited out onto the dry land of Midtown. And what you need and what I need, if we're going to be of any use to Jesus and his kingdom, uh, is not a better pitch to share our spiritual Lord Jesus with the unworthy. We need to know our own need of compassion. Let's pray.